Chapter 12 of Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve The inn was big and dark and busy. The walls were decorated with airships and bottles and the propellers of famous old sky clippers with their names carefully painted on the blades. Nadezina and Airy Mouse and Invisible Worm. Aviators clustered around the metal tables talking of cargoes and the price of gas. There were Janes and Tibetans and Zoza and Inuit and Arturig and fur-clad giants from the ice wastes. An I Uger, and a Uger girl played slipstream serenade on her forty-string guitar, and now and then a loudspeaker would announce, Arrival on Strut 3, the idiot wind, fresh from the Nuevo Mayan Palatinates, with a cargo of chocolate and vanilla, or, Now boarding at Strut 7. My Sharona, outbound for Archangel. Anna Fang stopped at a little shrine just inside the door and said her thanks to the gods of the sky for a safe journey. The god of aviators was a friendly-looking fellow. The fat red statue on the shrine reminded Tom of Chudley Pomeroy, but his wife, the Lady of the High Heavens, was cruel and tricky. If offended, she might brew up hurricanes or burst a gas cell. Anna made her an offering of rice cakes and lucky money, and Tom and Hester nodded their thank yous just in case. When they looked up, the aviatrix was already hurrying away from them toward a group of aviators at a corner table. Cora! she shouted, and by the time they caught up with her, she was being whirled around and around in the arms of a handsome young African and talking quickly in Esperanto. Tom was already sure he heard her mention Medusa as she glanced back at him and Hester, but by the time they drew near, the talk had switched into English, and the African was saying, We rode high-level winds all the way from Zagwa, and shaking red Sahara sand out of his flying helmet to prove it. He was Captain Cora of the gunship Mokel Mbembe, and he came from a static enclave in the Mountains of the Moon, an ally of the Anti-Traction League. Now he was bound for Shanguo to begin a tour of duty in the League's great fortress at Batmunk Gampa. Tom was shocked at first to be sharing a table with a soldier of the League, but Cora seemed a good man, as kind and welcoming as Miss Fang herself. While she ordered food, he introduced his friends. The tall, gloomy one was Nils Lindstrom of the Garden Aeroplane Trap, and the beautiful Arab lady with the laugh was Yasmina Rashid of the Palmyrene Privateer Zainab. So sorry, I'm butchering all of these beautiful names. <laughs> Soon the aviators were all laughing together, reminding each other of battles above the Hundred Islands and drunken parties in the airmen's quarters on Panzerstatlins. And between stories, Anna Fang pushed dishes, dishes across the table to her guests. More battered dormouse, Tom? Esther, try some of these delicious deviled bats. While Tom poked the strange foreign food around his plate with the pair of wooden sticks he had been given instead of a knife and fork, Cora leaned close and said softly, "'So are you and your girlfriend crewing aboard the Jenny now?' Uh, "'No, no,' Tom assured him quickly. "'I mean, no, she's, she's not my girlfriend. "'And no, we're just passengers,' he fumbled with some mashed locusts and asked, "'Do you know Miss Feng well?' "'Oh, yes,' laughed Cora." The whole air trade knows Anna, and the whole of the League, too, of course. In Shanguo, they call her Feng Hua, the Windflower. Tom wondered why Miss Feng would have a special name in Shanguo. But before he could ask, Cora went on, 
Do you know she built the Jenny Hanover herself? When she was just a girl, she and her parents had the bad luck to be aboard a town that was eaten by Archangel. They were put to work as slaves in the airship yards there, and over the years she managed to sneak an engine here, a steering vane there, until she built herself the Jenny and escaped. Tom was impressed. Well, she didn't say, he murmured, looking at the aviatrix in a new light. She doesn't talk about it, said Cora. You see, her parents did not live to escape with her. She watched them die in the slave pits. Tom felt a rush of sympathy for poor Miss Fang, his fellow orphan. Was that why she smiled all the time, to hide her sorrow? And was that why she had rescued Hester and himself to save them from her parents' fate? He smiled at her as kindly as he could, and she caught his eye and smiled back and passed him a plate of crooked black legs. Here, Tom, try a sautéed tarantula. Arrival on strut fourteen, blared the loudspeaker overhead. London airship GE-47, carrying passengers only. Tom jumped up and his chair fell backward with a crash. He could remember the little fast-moving scout ships that the engineers used to survey London's tracks and superstructure. And he remembered how they didn't have names, just registration codes, and how all the codes started with G-E. They've sent someone after us, he gasped. Miss Fang was rising to her feet as well. It might just be coincidence, she said. There must be lots of airships from London, and even if Valentine has sent someone after you, you are among friends. We are more than more than a match for your horrible beef burgers. Beef eaters, Tom corrected her automatically, although he knew that she had made the mistake deliberately, just to break the tension. He saw Hester smile, and felt glad that she was there, and fiercely determined to protect her. Then all the lights went out. There were shouts, boos, a crash of falling crockery from the kitchens. The windows were dim, twilight-colored shapes cut out of the dark. The electrics are off all over Airhaven, said Lindstrom's gloomy voice. The power plant must have failed. No, said Hester quickly. I know this trick. It's meant to create chaos and stop us leaving. Someone's here, coming for us. There was an edge of panic in her voice that Tom hadn't heard before not even in the chase at Staines. Suddenly, he felt very frightened. From the far end of the room, where crowds of people were spilling out onto the moonlit high street, a sudden scream arose. Then came another, and a long crash of breaking glass, shrieks, curses, the clatter of chairs and tables falling. Two green lamps bobbed o above the crowd like corpse lanterns. "'That's no beef-eater,' said Hester." Tom couldn't tell if she was frightened or relieved. Hester Shaw, screeched a voice like a saw cutting metal. Over by the doorway, a sudden cloud of vapor bloomed, and out of it stepped a stalker. It was seven feet tall, and beneath its coat shone metal armor. The flesh of its long face was pale, glistening with a slug-like film of mucus, and here and there a blue-white jag of bone showed through the skin. Its mouth was a slot full of metal teeth. Its nose and the top of its head were covered by a long metal skull piece with tubes and flexes trailing down like dreadlocks. Their ends plugged into ports on its chest. Its round glass eyes gave it a startled look as if it had never gotten over the horrible surprise of what had happened to it. Because that was the worst thing about the stalkers. They had been human once. 
and somewhere beneath that iron cowl a human brain was strapped. It's impossible, Tom whimpered. There aren't any stalkers. They were all destroyed centuries ago. But the stalker stood there still, horribly real. Tom tried to back away, but he couldn't move. Something was trickling down his legs as hot as spilled tea, and he realized that he had wet himself. The stalker came forward slowly, shoving aside the empty chairs and tables. Fallen glasses burst under its feet. From the shadows behind, an aviator swung at it with a sword, but the blade rebounded from its armor, and it smashed the man aside with a sweeping blow of one huge fist, not even bothering to glance back. Hester Shaw, it said. Thomas Natsworthy. It knows my name, he thought. I, began Miss Fang, but even she seemed lost for words. She pulled Tom backward while Cora and the others drew their swords and stepped between the creature and its prey. But Hester pushed past them. It's all right, she said in a strange, thin voice. I know him. Let me talk to him. The stalker swung its dead white face from Tom to Hester, lenses whirring inside mechanical eyes. Hester Shaw, it said, caressing her name with its gas-leak hiss of a voice. Hello, Shrike, said Hester. The great head tilted to stare down at her. A metal hand rose, hesitating, then touched her face, leaving streaks of oil. I'm sorry, I, I never got the chance to say goodbye. I work for the Lord Mayor of London now, said Shrike. He has sent me to kill you. Tom whimpered again. Hester gave a brittle little laugh. But you won't do it, will you, Shrike? You wouldn't kill me. Yes, said Shrike flatly, still staring down at her. No, Shrike, whispered Hester, and Miss Fang seized her chance. She drew a little fan-shaped sliver of metal from a pocket in the sleeve of her coat and sent it whirling toward the stalker's throat. It made an eerie moaning sound as it flew, unfolding into a shimmering razor-edged disc. A Nuevo Mayan battle frisbee, gasped Tom, who had seen such weapons safe in glass cases in the weapons and warfare section at the museum. He knew that they could never they could sever a man's neck at sixty paces, and he tensed, waiting for the stalker's skull to drop from its shoulders. But the frisbee just hit Shrike's armored throat with a clang and lodged there, quivering. The slit of a mouth lengthened into a long smile, and the stalker darted forward, quick as a lizard. Miss Fang sidestepped, jumped past it, and swung a high kick, but it was far too fast for her. "'Run!' she shouted at Hester and Tom. "'Get back to the Jenny! I'll follow!' What else could they do? So they ran. The thing snatched at them as they ducked past, but Cora was there to grab its arm, and Nils Lindstrom swung his sword at its face. The stalker flung Cora off and raised its hand. There were sparks and a shriek of metal on metal, and Lindstrom dropped the broken sword and howled and clutched his arm. It threw him aside and lifted Anna off her feet as she came at it again, swinging hard against Cora, swinging her hard against Cora and Yasmina when they rushed to her aid. "'Miss Fang!' shouted Tom. For a moment he thought of going back, but he knew enough about stalkers to know that there was nothing he could do. He ran after Hester, over a heap of bodies in the doorway, and out into shadows and twilight and the frightening milling crowds. A siren was keening mournfully. There was acrid smoke on the breeze, and over by the power plant, he thought he saw the flicker of the thing all aviators, aviators feared the most. 
Fire. I don't understand, gasped Hester, talking to herself, not Tom. He wouldn't kill me. He wouldn't. But she kept running, and together they dashed out onto Strut 7 where the Jenny Hanover was waiting for them. But Shrike had already made certain that the little airship would not be going anywhere that night. The envelope had been slashed, the cowling of the starboard engine pod had been wrenched open like an old tin can, and a spaghetti of torn wiring spilled out onto the quay. Among it lay the broken body of the boy Miss Fang had paid to guard her ship. Tom stood staring at the wreckage. Behind him, faintly growing closer, footsteps trod the metal deck. Pung, 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 pung. He looked around for Hester and found her gone limping away along the docking ring, running downhill. He realized for the damaged air town was developing a worrying tilt. He shouted her name and sprinted after her, following her out onto a neighboring strut. A tattered-looking balloon had just arrived there, spilling out a family of startled sightseers who weren't sure if the darkness and the shouting meant an emergency or some sort of carnival. Hester shouldered her way through them and grabbed the balloonist by his goggles, heaving him out of his basket. It sagged away from the quay as she leaped in. Stop! Thieves! Hijackers! A help! The balloonist was shouting, but all Tom could hear was that faint, appalling pung, pung, pung approaching fast along the high street. Tom, come on! He summoned all his strength and leapt after Hester. She was fumbling at the mooring ropes as he landed in the bottom of the basket. Throw everything overboard! She shouted at him. He did as he was told, and the balloon lurched forward, level with the first-floor windows with the rooftops, with the spire of St. Michael's. Soon, Airhaven was a donut of darkness falling away behind them and below, and Shrike was just a speck, his green eyes glowing as he stalked out along the strut to watch them go.